Welcome to Not A Christian Podcast. It's not a Christian podcast. It's a podcast that just happens to be Christian. In this podcast, we tell stories, we talk about life, faith, and pretty much anything else you can imagine. Now let's jump into it. Welcome back to the show. It's Not a Christian Podcast, episode 17 right here, Friday, January 29th, the last Friday of the month of January. Thank you so much. A life update. I was walking around the park the other day and I posted a Instagram story about this. And then a couple days later, I posted a poll about it because it was still there. But if you haven't looked at my Instagram story, let me catch you up. I was walking around the park as I do, you know, pretty often. And there was a bowl I saw on the ground, just like a white paper disposable bowl. And it was nailed to the ground and it was full of dog poop. And on the rim of the bowl were written a few words and it says, belong to your dog? Question mark. So basically what I'm gathering happened is that someone let their dog poop right in the middle of the walking trail and they didn't pick it up. That ain't good, right? Kind of a jerk. But then a person came along, saw it, and said, you know what, I need to take justice into my own hands. So they were walking or running or doing something, and they saw that, and they weren't happy about it, obviously. So they went home, got a paper bowl, got a nail, probably took a hammer with them, took a marker, wrote on the bowl, went back to the spot where the dog poop was, somehow got the poop in the bowl, don't know if they touched it or they brought like a glove with them, the effort that that person had to go through to do that, to prove their point, was just kind of the next level of pettiness, you know? So that kind of raised a question for me, and I posted this as an Instagram poll. I said, who's the worst person? The person that didn't pick up their dog's poop or the person that left the passive-aggressive bowl with a note on it? And I think... You guys got it right. It was a lot more split than I thought it was going to be. About 60% of you said the petty person was the worst person. And I'm going to have to agree with you on that. Because here's the thing. The person that didn't pick up their dog's poop, that's a one-time instantaneous decision that they probably forgot about 30 seconds later. I'm not saying they were right, but it was just kind of like maybe a lapse of judgment or maybe just a moment like, ah, I don't really care. Also, you know, dogs poop on the ground. Let's not blame the dog. The dog is not at fault. Most dogs are good. The owners are bad, okay? (laughs) I had a dog once, and it trapped my friends on the trampoline at one of my birthday parties, and I was inside. I didn't, like, with a couple other friends, I didn't know about it. And I think, like, they had to wait till my dad came home and saw them, like, trapped on the trampoline to come and chase the dog away or call the dog away i guess but that was a bad dog but most dogs are you know pretty good uh and it's if they're bad it's because of their owner our dog wasn't bad because of we were because we were bad owners that dog was just psycho (laughs) it was he was crazy uh but i think the person that left the bull was more was a worse person like i said kind of a temporary lapse of judgment on the other person's part maybe a little bit of laziness but that person that left the bull 
that was a premeditated act that they put a lot of thought and a lot of effort into. So I think they're the worst person. And it might have to do with my personality type. If you know me as a person, I'm not, first of all, I'm pretty chill. And also, I'm not like the cleanest or tidiest person in the world. So if I relate to somebody, it might be the person that left their dog poop. I don't have a dog. Don't know if I would do that if I had a dog. But I don't really relate to the person who likes things to be clean and orderly, which might be the personality type of the person who left the note. I don't know. I think the worst person is the person who went back to their house, gathered all those supplies, went back to the side of the poop, put the poop in the bowl, wrote on the rim of the bowl, nailed the bowl into the ground, got in their car, went back home, and thought to themselves, wow, I am something else. And, (laughs) oh, I don't know. Anyways, I think that's the worst person. You guys mostly agreed with me, so thank you for that, I guess. Not that I need affirmation for my own opinion. But, hey, here's the deal. Today, the main segment is very long. So I'm going to give you a roadmap of where we're going, but it's going to consist of one segment. And this segment is women in ministry. When I do some of these theological segments, they're going to be a little longer. And in order to keep the podcast at a pretty, you know, decent length, I'm not going to be able to talk about as much. So I just told that little story. And then next, the whole thing is just one segment. But just stay tuned all the way to the end. At the very end of the show, I'm going to tell you about a massive giveaway, the biggest giveaway I've ever done in a history of Not A Christian Podcast coming up next week. So without any further ado, let's jump into the only segment on women in ministry. I feel like we've been leading up to this for quite a while now. In 2020, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I kind of sensed and and heard from people that they want the show to include more theological topics, and that's what we're going to do today. So a couple weeks back, I posted a poll and I asked, what do you want the first topic to be? And I gave you two choices. The first one was women in ministry, and the second choice was the spiritual but not religious crowd. And I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but if I remember correctly, it was about 65 to 70% of you said you wanted to talk about women in ministry first. So here we are. That's what we're talking about today. But if you voted for spiritual but not religious, don't fret, don't click away, don't boycott Not A Christian Podcast, don't cancel me, whatever you do. (laughs) That topic, spiritual but not religious, is not getting cast into the lake of fire to never be thought about again. I've already done some reading and research on it. I'm interested in it. We'll talk about it on an episode of Not A Christian Podcast in the near future, but today... Women in ministry is the bell of the ball, the conversation for today's show. And let me just encourage you, maybe you have opinions on this, I'm sure that you do. A month or so back, I posted a series of theological questions, or it may have been closer to two months, I don't really know. But I asked you guys, what are your views on women in ministry? And the way I worded it was, biblically speaking, is a woman able to hold the office of pastor of a church? And it was a pretty split vote. I think about 55% said, no, biblically, a woman cannot hold the office of pastor of a church. And then the other 45% said, yes, a woman can. So this is a pretty contentious issue in churches today, especially depending on your denomination. And if you're Baptist like I am, this issue has been in the forefront of our minds for the past several years 
and I see it only getting more and more relevant as we move forward. So, let me just encourage you, listen to the end. Whether you agree with what I say or disagree with what I say, or maybe you think I'm going in a certain direction, but I might be going in another direction, you never know. If you know me personally, closely, you might know what my standing is on this issue. And I may tip my hand along the way, but the the main thing I want to do is kind of invite you into kind of my understanding of this topic as my life and my ministry has kind of unfolded. So like I said, I'm not going to tell you right up front what I believe on this issue, but I will clearly state it at the end so there's no confusion on where I stand. So listen to the whole thing and maybe we get to the end and you completely disagree with what I say. It's not going to hurt you to listen. It's not going to affect your faith if I've come to a different conclusion on this issue than you. Because this isn't a salvation issue. It's definitely a big issue, a relevant issue, but it's not going to affect your salvation or my salvation. So once we get to the end of this, send me a DM. Let me know what you thought, but keep it nice. Keep it civil. First, I'm just going to define a couple of terms that I may or may not be using throughout the course of this conversation. The first term I'm going to throw out there is complementarian. And you may know this word already, but if you don't, complementarian is basically the biblical view that men and women have different complementary roles in society, in marriage, in family life, and in church leadership. So that's men and women are different, but they both have an equally important role. The other term is egalitarianism. That's the view that men and women are equal in all ways and hold equal rights to serve in any role in society, marriage, family life, and church leadership. And all of those facets are different. They overlap in some areas, but they are different. Today, for this conversation, we are only talking about complementarianism versus egalitarianism in the realm of church leadership. Okay, so this is not talking about marriage. This is not talking about family life, how you relate to children. This is just in the church and in church leadership. So maybe we can talk about that. Those, maybe we can talk about those other roles, those gender roles in another future episode of Not a Christian Podcast. But for today, we're talking about church leadership. And let me first kind of briefly take you throughout my history with this topic. Like I said a couple of weeks back, I did not grow up in church, so I never really knew what the Bible said about men's and women's roles, and I certainly didn't know it's a contentious issue on whether or not a woman can serve as a pastor. However, my background, once I did become a Christian, was primarily Baptist, and if you're from Texas or from the South, Southern Baptist is typically the norm, and in that line of thinking, the norm is that Women are not allowed to be a pastor or a minister, except maybe sometimes they can be like a children's minister. Uh, They can be a youth leader or a youth coordinator, but they won't call them a youth minister. They won't call them a youth pastor, even though they, they do the same thing that a male youth pastor would. The church just won't call them that. So that's kind of how I came up. And I, I don't know when I kind of picked up on this. Because when I was in high school, I don't honestly remember if I could tell you or not what I believed on female pastors. I don't know if at that time I could have even 
picked up on the fact that some people say women can be pastors and some groups say women can't be pastors. So I think the time when I kind of picked up on this, that ministry was kind of perceived in the Baptist tradition as a man's game, I was probably around the age of, of 19 or 20. You know, I was, I was in college. I'd been a Christian for, you know, four or five years. Sometime in this time frame, I just came to adopt kind of the standard, you know, Baptist kid answer of, you know, can a woman be a pastor? And my answer, if you would have asked me that question at this time, would have been something like, no, a woman can't be a pastor. Because of scriptures like 1 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 14, the Bible is quite clear that women cannot be the pastor of a church. And that doesn't mean that God values women less, but he's just given them different roles than those that he's given men. Women have equal standing in the kingdom of God and just as much access to God as, as men do through the Holy Spirit. And God has given all women a means to minister to other women and maybe to children and perhaps in ways that men couldn't do quite as well. But at the end of the day, God's rules are God's rules and we should just gladly accept them and not question them. So that was kind of my position on it, and I was quite happy with it. It didn't really affect my day-to-day life or my day-to-day perception of who God was. And then I remember this one conversation I was having with a pastor. I was probably about 22, maybe 23. This pastor wasn't my pastor of my church. I'm not going to you know, say how I knew him, what my relationship with him was, but it was just someone I kind of knew in passing. And I was kind of mentioning to him that after I, you know, finished up with my stuff at BSM at Angelo State, I wanted to go to seminary. So he asked me, well, where are you considering going? And at the time I knew of two seminaries in Texas and Logsdon was not one of them, the one I ended up going to. I didn't learn about Logsdon until a little later. But at that time, I'm not going to name the seminaries because of reasons, but there were two seminaries that kind of have different ideologies and both are located in Texas. And if you're familiar with the seminary, the Baptist seminary, uh, landscape of Texas, you can probably guess which two I'm talking about. There's the two big ones, uh, but they have different ideologies on several different things on education, on church leadership. So we were talking about that and he kind of leaned towards the more, I guess, conservative one. And I wasn't really sure which one I wanted to go to. So we were talking and he said, well, what are your views on this? And I would tell him, well, I kind of think this. And he said, yeah, you know, this more conservative one would probably be for you. And then I remember he asked me, he said, what do you think about women being in ministry? Do you think women should be able to be pastors? And I said, well, no, they shouldn't because the Bible says so, right? And he said, yeah, I think if if that's what you believe, then maybe this seminary would be better for you. So that conversation, while it didn't, it didn't influence my decision on where to go to seminary, uh, <laughs> it did kind of open my eyes that there were Baptists out there that affirmed women in ministry. That was new to me. And really kind of the way that I was, I guess, taught or the way that I perceived things around me, the way I thought the church worked, you know, that was what was taught to me, that women can't be pastors. It was a downright unbiblical practice, and only these crazy liberal left-field churches and these crazy radical feminists with feminist agendas, I was taught that those were kind of the only people who affirmed female pastors. However, it kind of intrigued me through that conversation that, 
okay, Baptists, some Baptists believe this? So that's interesting, and that's kind of like the thing I was talking about last week. I was kind of trained and taught in what to think rather than how to think about certain things. In the summer of 2016, I interned at a Baptist church in San Angelo. During my interview, the last thing the pastor that I was going to intern under said to me, he said, there's something that you ought to know about our church. He says, I don't know if you're comfortable with this or not, or if it's a deal breaker or not, but we affirm female pastors in our church, and we even have a female pastor in our church. And I tried not to get a deer in the headlights look, (laughs) because still in my mind, that was a sign of like kind of crazy left field liberal Christianity. But based on what I knew of this church and, and of the staff there, that was definitely not my perception of them. So I was intrigued. And at the end of the day, I, it wasn't a deal breaker. I went ahead and interned with that church and I kind of got to see them in action. And I thought, you know what? These people aren't so weird. These people aren't as strange as, as everyone would have me believe since they affirm female pastors. They aren't like... <laughs> I don't know. They aren't as weird as I I would perceive them to be. And as I interned in that church that summer, over just like two or three months, I started wondering, and I I had conversations with the pastor about this topic, but it was all kind of overwhelming to me because everything I'd been taught to think was kind of being turned on its head. And then it came time for me to go to seminary. And like I said, I chose logs in seminary and we had to interview in order to gain admittance. And during my interview, the one of the professors at Logsdon, Dr. Lyle, who was conducting the interview, he said, there's something that you should know about our seminary. And if you're not comfortable with it, then you know maybe it would be something to consider. He said, we support women in ministry. He said, we're very big on supporting women in ministry. So that was another moment where I just thought, well, okay. And this was just a couple months after I'd finished that church internship. And I said to him, you know what? I interned at a church this past summer that, that has that same conviction. And that's kind, I'm kind of, you know, exploring that right now. So he said, okay, then <laughs> welcome to Logsdon. I guess, I don't remember what he said after that. But when I was at Logsdon, within the first month or so, they have this thing called the Women in Ministry Conference where it's, it's open to anyone. It's not just for women, but for anyone who wants to learn more about how women can be involved in ministry and and what the Bible actually says about it. And, you know, when I got to seminary, and kind of around the time before that, my attitude was towards this topic. This was, and I'm not saying this is my attitude now, but this was my attitude before. It was, I'm a man who's called to ministry. And if there's a woman that's called to ministry, that's going to be tough for her to figure out. But I'm glad I don't have to figure out if this is biblical or not. (laughs) And like I said, that was the the early attitude I have. But then conviction came when I really started to, you know, get into youth ministry that I was doing at the time. And I always knew that my future was hopefully going to be in college ministry, which it is now. And I thought to myself, you know, what if I have a youth student or a college student someday who is female and she's trying to figure out what she wants to do with her life and she feels this calling to ministry? Is quoting a Bible verse at her? really going to be the best thing I can do? And since apparently there are people that love Jesus, not these crazy liberals, there are people that love Jesus that say women can be pastors. So what what would I tell her? So that kind of got me convicted to start thinking through this because while it didn't affect me personally, 
it was likely going to affect people that I minister to someday. So as I just kind of did some casual reading, you know, this was never a topic I wrote about in seminary or anything, but as I did some reading and studying and listening and learning, I noticed some inconsistencies in the more complementarian view of women in ministry, particularly women being pastors. And remember, complementarian is the more conservative, saying women can't be pastors, but women do have equal roles. I noticed a few inconsistencies. The first inconsistency was how Colossians 3.18, Ephesians 5.22-33, and 1 Peter 3.7, as well as some other passages, all talk about gender roles in marriage and in family life. And I noticed people also using that to bolster their argument that women shouldn't be pastors of church because they are to be submissive to men. They are to submit under men and to learn under men. But the inconsistency came when I kind of thought, you know, where does the Bible say that the church should be run the same way as a marriage? Should the operation of a church be the same as a household? And I couldn't find any scripture that supported that. So while both of them had to do with gender roles, they were in two separate places. Another inconsistency that I found was that women were able to teach children, maybe even teach youth and other women, but women could not teach men. And then I got to thinking, what is a man? You see, in Jewish culture, in biblical times, manhood was around like the age of 13. So where do we draw the line today? Of course, youth groups, they age, their age range is like 12 to 18. So if we're going to stri- strive and, and opt for strict biblicism, women couldn't teach youth kids. And there were plenty of churches, even Baptist churches. Like I said, they wouldn't call them a youth pastor, but they would call their, their female youth leader or youth coordinator or something like that. So why are women allowed if... They're not allowed to teach men. Why are women allowed to sing in worship and to lead worship? Why do we invite female missionaries into our pulpit and call it giving a talk instead of them giving a sermon? Why can a woman teach a co-ed Sunday school class where she is very much teaching while there may be men present? You see, being quiet and submissive, as some Bible verses and passages say, and we'll get into those in a minute, That doesn't seem like someone who has any kind of leadership in a church. You know, whether it be a youth leader or a children's minister or a Sunday school teacher, even if you're not giving them the title of pastor, that just quiet and submissive doesn't add up with that. The next inconsistency I noticed was, you know, what's a woman's role in the church? If they do have a different but equal role in the church, then what exactly is it? Because most churches I was around up to that point didn't really give women much opportunities. So if you're going to say, yeah, women have different roles in the church, but they're equal, is there a role in the church that a woman has that a man can't do? And I couldn't find a single one, really. Because think about the, the things that churches typically have for women to do. You know, nursery coordinator, church secretary, maybe children's minister. I've seen men do all of those things. So they weren't different but equal, It was more so men can do any of the roles and women can do a few of the roles. And finally, the fourth inconsistency with kind of the more complementarian view that I found was with the rest of Scripture, honestly, kind of the not not focusing in on specific Scripture passages, but the overarching story of the Bible. 
And we're going to get into some specific verses later. So don't tune out when I'm going through these and say, like, oh, he's avoiding the hard passages. I know what the hard passages, the difficult passages are in the issue of women in ministry. We're going to talk about those closer to the end. But as far as kind of the big picture of the Bible saw, the first inconsistency I kind of learned about was with creation. God created Adam and Eve. He created a male and female, but he never really had much distinction of male headship like we like to read into it. And both were given responsibility in Genesis 1 for all of creation. God created Eve as a partner for Adam because it was good for him not to be alone. You see, the animals weren't good enough company for him. And all of this culminates into the fact that they're called one flesh in Genesis 2.24. And to me, if they're one flesh, that implies equality. If they are one they are equal. And some English translations even leave out that Adam was present with Eve when she took the fruit from the serpent. So Adam was just as culpable in sin as Eve was. And then we think about Jesus's ministry. And women during Jesus's time were regarded as inferior. And all they were supposed to do was have kids and take care of the home. They played no part in local government, no part in education, anything like that. That was all for the men. However, Jesus taught and acted way differently than the society that he was in. He affirmed the value of women as not only that they weren't lower class citizens, but they were equal with men. Men at that time could get a divorce on almost any grounds and they could use almost anything they wanted to justify it. Women were held responsible for sexual sin during Jesus' time. However, Jesus indicted men for looking lustfully at women in Matthew 5. So while at that time, society may have said, you know, if a man is looking at a woman lustfully, then it's her fault. She should be dressing more modestly. And of course, in today's culture, that would never fly. But that's how it was in Jesus' day. So for Jesus to say, like, you know what, not only is that untrue, but if you, a man, look at a woman lustfully, that's on you. So Jesus was kind of changing the narrative on what it meant to be a woman. Jesus ministered to a rejected woman. A woman in Mark chapter 5 was unclean. She battled a years-long menstrual cycle. And by law, the fact that she touched Jesus made him unclean. However, Jesus interacted with her. He didn't condemn her, but he forgave her of her sins and he healed her. He offered salvation to someone that was a known adulteress in John chapter 5, and she was the one given the responsibility to evangelize back to her town. In Jesus' day, responsible teachers didn't teach women. Jesus taught women. In Luke chapter 10, we have the story of Mary and Martha. You may know it as Martha is running around the house super busy trying to get things prepared for Jesus. And then Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus talking to him and Martha gets upset. And a lot of times we think, well, it's because Martha is the one doing all the work. And while it may have partially been that, the fact that Mary was sitting at Jesus's feet was a huge cultural faux pas. Since Jesus was a teacher, Teachers at that time only taught men. So for Mary to sit at Jesus' feet, for Mary to assume the place of a man, made Martha pretty upset. The feet of a teacher was no place for a woman. However, that's where Mary sat. Jesus didn't condemn Mary. He praised her. 
And he told Martha, this is what you should aspire to be. Mary has chosen the good portion. The Gospels also show that women were the first ones to run back into town and declare the empty tomb on Easter. They were sharing the news of Jesus on that day. Back in the early church, after the days of Jesus, Joel 2, 28-32 comes to fruition in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It says, And afterward I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. So this was an Old Testament prophecy. And whenever Pentecost happened, whenever the Holy Spirit first came upon people on a widespread scale, Peter says, look, you know that passage back in Joel? That's happening right now. So he's arguing that God's Spirit is for men as well as women. The call to make disciples is on men and on women. The last days that that Joel is referring to, I firmly believe, because of this affirmation in Acts chapter 2, I think when the Bible talks about last days, it's simply talking about the days after Jesus. So we are living in the last days, and I'm not being apocalyptic about that, but the Bible tells us that in the last days, men and women, slaves, children, young, old, everyone will prophesy. Everyone will speak forward with the truth. Everyone can have the Spirit of God, regardless of race or gender. Another example in the early church is that women helped establish the church at Philippi in Acts chapter 16. They were gathered outside for the city gate for prayer. Lydia was a convert of Paul's and her home became the center of the Philippian church. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24, tells us about a Jew named Apollos. And he came to Ephesus, says he was eloquent, he was competent in scripture, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And it said he spoke and taught accurately about the things concerning Jesus. And it says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and Priscilla and Aquila, who were a wife and a husband, took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And it doesn't say that this happened within the context of church, but Honestly, what difference does it make? What difference does it make whether it was in a church or not? Because we have that modern quip today, the church is not a building, the church is a people. So when we say women shouldn't teach, that's not just confined to a church building or an organizational church, I wouldn't think. Finally, Paul's letters mention 12 women who he referred to as co-workers or co-laborers. 1 Corinthians 1, Colossians 4, Philemon 2, Acts 16, Romans 16. What was Paul doing in his missionary journey? He was planting churches. And in a paganized culture, that required people to be taught. So when he referred to these women as co-laborers, what else were they doing besides maybe teaching other people? And other people may have included men. So that's kind of, those are kind of some of the, you know, inconsistencies that I saw and learned about. I didn't come up with them all on my own. Did a lot of research, but... However, there were still like a couple of passages from Scripture that kind of loomed large, and they seemed to me to be very clear in their teaching. So that's what I'm going to dive into now. I'm going to dive first into 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. And this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, The women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. 
If there is anything else they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So, like I said, when you read those verses on the surface, it seems pretty clear. Women shouldn't teach in a church. Let's go ahead, though, and expand our reading a little bit. Look at chapters 12 through 14. What are the purpose of those chapters? Paul in these chapters is talking about spiritual gifts. The proper use of spiritual gifts and also how to conduct an orderly church service with those gifts. In 1427, when regarding speaking in tongues, Paul tells people to keep silent if there's no interpreter around. In verse 29, he says this. He says, let two to three prophets speak and the others sit and pass judgment. But if one who is seated receives a revelation from God, the first must keep silent. For if you can all prophesy one by one, and when he's referring to prophecy here, I think he's more just implying speaking the truth of God, the word of God, rather than making predictions about the future. So, twice, right before the women should be silent, keep silent passage, Paul tells some other groups of people to keep silent. But it's not saying to keep silent at all times, but to keep silent in specific occasion. You see, Paul's concern here is with order and chaos in a service. And it doesn't seem consistent that he would all of a sudden transition that conversation into just saying like, oh yeah, by the way, women should, you know, shut up and not say anything in church. When people, the passage says that when people were speaking on behalf of God and others were to discern it, whether it was true or not, women were chiming in their opinions. And during this time, women weren't educated. So it was kind of creating chaos in the church. And they were talking over one another. They were talking over men. And finally, Paul says, you know what? If you don't know it, go home and ask your husband because he is educated. Like I said, that's just, that's a cultural thing. And in the Middle East, it was also, which is where, you know, a lot of Paul's ministry happened, kind of in the Middle East around the Mediterranean. It was normal for men and women to sit apart in church, and it's still practiced in some Christian churches today. The sermon was often preached in a classical Arabic language that the women didn't know because they were uneducated, and the men did know it. And because the women didn't understand a word that was coming from the preacher, they may often get bored and start talking amongst themselves during the church service, and the preacher would have to tell them to be quiet. And if they didn't understand the sermon, then they needed to just sit there, be quiet, and wait until they went home and ask their husbands. See, all that is much more consistent with the scripture rather than just saying that women shouldn't be ministers. Paul, like we said, he's concerned that churches are becoming disorderly in their services. So these suggestions are much more plausible than Paul just saying women need to sit down and shut up while they're in church, go home, cook dinner, have kids, take care of the house. And also, if we're going to look at even the broader picture of 1 Corinthians, way back in chapter 11, Paul says this. He says, when women pray and prophesy, they should do so with their head covered. So he's not saying that women can't prophesy that women can't pray 
But because of a cultural thing at the time, the head covering, we won't get into that, but that's not the point. He says, women, when you pray and prophesy, do this. He says that in chapter 11. He wouldn't turn around in chapter 14 then all of a sudden say, women need to just keep silent altogether. It's not possible for a woman to keep silent and to pray and prophesy. It isn't consistent with the sentiment that women should be quiet in church. So when we read that passage out of 1 Corinthians 14, we don't need to just gloss over it and say, okay, women should keep silent in the churches because this was written to women who were in the congregation, not women who were trying to be pastors, not women who were trying to preach. It was to women who were becoming distracted during the church service. It was to women who were disrupting church services with their questions or with their ideas that stemmed from their lack of education. It's not talking about females being pastors. So we need to stop treating that 1 Corinthians 14 passage as though it is the end-all be-all for women in ministry. So now that we've talked about that passage, I'm going to get to the big passage or the big verse. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 9 through 15 and particularly verse 12 is the one that causes so many problems. But before we get into that, let's talk about the culture to which this was written. Paul was writing this to Timothy and at the time Paul was likely in a place called Ephesus. That may sound familiar to you because that's also who he wrote the letter of Ephesians to. So, in Ephesus, there was a very powerful pagan religion, a very powerful pagan goddess who was named Artemis, and Artemis was known as the mother of life. You see, when we study scripture, we have to also consider what was going on in history because, yes, the Bible is a treasure and it is applicable to us today, but it was just as much a work of literature and a work of instruction for the people that it was written to in its time 2,000 years ago. And if you can imagine 2,000 years ago on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean in the Middle East, their context was just a little bit different than ours. You see, and we learn about culture through the Bible, but we can also use other sources. See, there was a work of literature called the Ephesiaca, and it was written by someone named Xenophon, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. This was a work of literature that was thought when it was first discovered in the 17th century to be a 2nd century work. However, in 1996, it was more accurately dated earlier, around 50 AD, which would have lined up perfectly with Paul's time frame at the time he was in Ephesus. Ephesus was where Paul, like we said earlier, wrote the letter we know as 1 Timothy. And in Ephesus, the goddess Artemis was a very powerful force. A part of being a part of the Artemis cult was that everyone who was in the cult was an extreme feminist. All of their leaders and teachers and adherents were women. Men were not allowed in, and they kept the men in check. And the thing that's really interesting about Paul's writing in the New Testament is that he uses this word authority over 100 times. The word he typically uses for authority is the Greek word exousia. 
and he uses that over 100 times. However, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he uses the word authority the only time it's used in Scripture in a different way, a different Greek word. He doesn't use the word exousia. So basically, when he uses the word authenteo for this kind of authority in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we have to figure out, okay, what does that mean? And usually you can cross-reference it with other occurrences in the Bible and say, okay, this is kind of the broad meaning of that word, so that's what he means here. However, like I said, it was only used once in the New Testament. So we have to go outside the Bible to other Greek works of literature to figure out what people thought when they read this word because the Bible was written to the world around it. It's okay to use extra biblical sources to find out about biblical culture and to help us interpret the Bible. But the word was authenteo. And the translation of this was to take arms, to self-arm for battle, self-appointed without submission. So, let's go ahead and read the passage from 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 9, going all the way through verse 15. It says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So, when Paul uses the word authority there to exercise authority over a man, he's not using his normal word of authority. He's not talking about kind of a general authority. He's saying that women do not need to take authority, self-appoint themselves over men, which was very consistent in the cult of Artemis, because remember, this was a feminist cult. A part of that cult, which greatly influenced culture, was to elevate themselves over men. So Paul is directly addressing maybe some converts that came out of that cult, but are bringing practices into the church, or maybe women who are basically trying to take over the church. They aren't Christians, but they're coming to church because they're trying to convert everyone over to the religion of Artemis. So we have to look at some of the Greek words. Authenteo means to self-appoint, to wrestle power away. So Paul isn't saying that women can't have any authority over men, but he's saying to a specific culture, he's saying these women who are coming from this Artemis cult, I do not permit them to exercise a self-appointed authority over men. I do not permit them to teach their false teachings about men to men, that men are inferior. Another Greek word that we can look into here from verse 12 is that of permit or allow. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority. The Greek word for that is epitrepo. This word is used less than 20 times in the New Testament. And in almost every occurrence, it is not saying allow permanently, 
but it's talking about a temporary allowance. When Jesus is dealing with someone who is demon-possessed, and he's casting the demons out of him, and they ask if they can go into the pigs, he says, yes, I allow you, I epitrapo you to go into the pigs. And that was just a temporary allowance, an exception to the rules, if you will. And it's used several other times in the New Testament that way, not to say allow as in it is a permanent fact, but allow as in temporarily or as an exception to a normal rule. So when Paul is saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, he was doing so most likely just to this culture. He was saying, I am temporarily not allowing you to do this because of everything that's going on with the Artemis cult. And then what about all that business with the the hair, the braided hair, the gold and the pearls, costly attire? Paul is telling them not to dress like that. Is that saying that women today who are real Christians shouldn't braid their hair or shouldn't wear gold or pearls? No, it's not saying that. So we have to say what was going on at this time that inspired him to write that way. This type of hairstyle was used in Ephesus to show loyalty to the goddess Artemis. Paul is saying that you don't have to show your loyalty to God in that way. My God, our God, the one true God, doesn't care about ornate hair. He doesn't care about your jewelry or your expensive clothes. He's saying, show you belong to God, not with outward appearances, but with your deeds. As an act of worship, it is pointless to have this nice hair and this gold jewelry and these really expensive clothes. So that's the thing is that we is that right away we have to start looking at the context because if we don't look at context, what we're going to take away from this passage is that women can't braid their hair, wear gold or pearls to church, I guess. They also can't teach in church. And there's, there's something at the end of the passage that's rather confusing too if we don't take culture into account. You see, public speaking at the Artemisium, which was the place where Artemis was worshipped, it was a spectacle that people came from around the world to look at. Women who were a part of the Artemis cult, they would chant about Artemis, and people came from all around the world to pay respects to the goddess Artemis and also just to see what all this was about. So the women there were trained to teach that women were better than men and that sin entered the world through men so that women were indeed blameless. So Paul was saying that, so Paul, when he gets into that conversation about Adam and Eve, he isn't bashing Eve. He was saying that you just can't elevate women above men. Some people will say checkmate on women in ministry. They can't do it because Paul refers to Adam and Eve here. And if he refers to Adam and Eve and Adam being authoritative over Eve and Eve being under Adam, And the fact that Adam wasn't deceived, but it was Eve that was deceived and became a transgressor. If you were to interpret it that way, then maybe you would have a point. If you were to interpret it that way, then it's a timeless, universal truth rather than a truth that is contextual only to the time that Paul was writing this letter. And the question is asked, since Adam and Eve serve as that blueprint, Can you really use this passage to say that women can indeed serve in ministry? But like we said, the Artemis cult said that women were above men. Paul's retort wasn't to say, okay, women 
are not above men. In fact, men are above women. So you can't elevate her over Adam. But that is in no way implying that he's elevating Adam over Eve. Another belief about Artemis is that she helped her own mother deliver her twin brother Apollo. And because of that, she was also known as the goddess of childbearing. So if you did not remain loyal to Artemis, you would die during childbirth. And that was a real fear among people in Ephesus because the Artemis cult had such influence. That's why Paul says at the end, he says at ver- in verse 15, she will be saved through childbearing. And if you don't take cons- cultural consideration into account, once again, that can be a very confusing. Our women Is a woman's salvation dependent upon her having a kid or not? What about women who can't have children? What about women who don't want to have children? Or women who choose not to get married and not to have children in that way? So the Artemis cult taught that you would literally die if you were a woman giving birth to a child. You would literally die if you weren't loyal to Artemis. So Paul here, he's not talking about a spiritual salvation. He's not talking about getting saved and going to heaven. He's talking about physical life. Because that was something that women feared. If I turn away from Artemis and follow Jesus, then Artemis is going to kill me when I'm giving birth to a child. So, throughout all of this passage, we have to take into account cultural considerations. He's saying, women, don't worry about your braided hair and your ornate attire. I know Artemis requires that, but God doesn't. And don't go into church wearing that stuff if it leads other people to believe that you worship Artemis. And when he's saying he doesn't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, he's giving that as a temporary mandate. Because these people, these women from the Artemis cult, were infiltrating churches and trying to do just that. He wasn't saying this as a timeless thing. He wasn't saying that this is how it's going to be for all time. He was saying, in this situation, these women don't need to be doing that. He's saying that you can't elevate women over men because Eve was deceived. They're on equal ground. And finally, childbirth. A woman's salvation does not hinge on her having a kid or not. He's saying, if you follow Jesus, you don't have to worry about Artemis killing you for not being faithful. So, The thing is, that braided hair section, a lot of people who are more complementarian will say like, oh yeah, that was a cultural thing. But literally, the next verse, they'll say, but whenever we say, let a woman learn with all submissiveness and women aren't permitted to teach or exercise authority, they'll say, okay, yeah, that's definitely not cultural. That's a mandate for all people of all times. And then at the end of that passage, you'll be saved through childbearing. They'll say, They'll go, they'll go right back to saying, yes, that's, that's something that we have to take into account, account the culture. And the thing is, it, it doesn't make any sense to do that. All of this was written to these women in Ephesus, these women who worshipped Artemis and were infiltrating the church. Therefore, Paul was saying, you know what, for now, I'm not permitting these women to teach. It wasn't an all-time ban on women teaching in a church. So, that kind of concludes my case. 
I know I didn't address every single passage, and I can picture the Theo bros and the DMs right now saying, you didn't bring up this passage. Okay, this was just to get the ball rolling, to get some thoughts going. And I know kind of in my personal journey, I thought, you know, a big roadblock for me was that if I come to a place where I accept women being in ministry, then it's a slippery slope because then I'll become more progressive and then I'll accept this or that. And eventually it's going to get to where I don't even think the resurrection was a real thing. (laughs) And uh, that never happened. So like I said, you may have picked up on what I believe throughout the duration of this episode. But just in case you didn't, I'll go ahead and state it here. I affirm all women in ministry in any facet or any aspect, whether that be a deacon slash deaconess of a church, youth minister, children's minister, or even the head pastor of a church. Um, I've heard all the equal but different arguments, and I feel like those are just there to justify the misread teachings of Paul that we just talked about. I've studied scripture and books and commentaries and cultures, and these are just the conclusions that I've come to. And the the way I view it is that God has given us this gospel to share. And why do we get so bogged down in who gets to share it and where they get to share it? Why can a woman share the gospel anywhere but the pulpit of a church? Just because someone is born as a woman, why are they disqualified? That's inconsistent with the gospel itself. And like I said earlier, it's inconsistent with the entirety of scripture, in my opinion, in the way that I've studied and read scripture. While we sit around fine-tuning our arguments for or against certain topics, scanning our Bibles for gotcha verses saying, this is why a woman can't be a pastor, there are people living and dying without ever hearing the gospel. Why are we so caught up in like, no, a woman can't do that. A woman can't do that in the context of a church. And the thing is, like I said earlier, my beliefs used to be different than they are now. It's uncomfortable to change. But the thing is, I I think I mentioned this last week, is, is to always search for the truth, even if it means sacrificing comfort. For a long time, I went with the safe Baptist answer because it's a hard thing to challenge yourself. And I know that a lot of people are going to disagree with me on this, and that's kind of a hard thing um, for me right now. Uh, some people would even, I know, maybe some people are going to listen to this and discredit me as being like a competent or trustworthy minister um, because that's just the way we are. For some reason, women in ministry has become like, in the Baptist world, probably like the issue of the day. And if you believe on one side of it, the side that I believe on, the side that affirms women in ministry, then for some reason you are just like ostracized and like kind of cast out. But the thing is like, I still love teaching people to share the gospel. I still like evangelism. I still love Jesus. And I read my Bible devotionally every day. And this doesn't mean I'm some kind of crazy liberal who, who just like, oh, there's no rules and I disrespect the Bible. I hope that if you learned anything from this is that my views are very much centered on the Bible. Because you, can, you could go about this, and I've heard people go about this issue, women in ministry, as like a social justice thing of like, oh, women deserve an equal voice. Women have been oppressed by the church. But ultimately, our views should be inspired by the Bible. And I hope that you saw today every argument I gave was st- strictly from the overarching story of Scripture 
and just debunking these scriptures that have been used for so long to keep women from serving in ministry. So you can say whatever you want. You can, you can DM me and say, like, you missed this or you're wrong about this, but don't accuse me, don't accuse me of not respecting the Bible, of having unbiblical opinions. I didn't twist this scripture. Believe me, if I was going to twist scripture to make it say what I want, I would have just stayed in the most comfortable camp, saying, yeah, the Bible says this on the surface level, so that's just what we should go with. That would be more comfortable because more people would agree with me. However, as I've, as I've looked at this topic, I just, I can't do that. I can't come to that conclusion. And to be quite honest with you, I'm kind of nervous about releasing this episode. It's the first time I've publicly, like, clearly stated that this is the side I'm on, on this issue. And there were times when, when I thought, like, I can never let people know about this <laughs> for various reasons. Uh, when I was dreaming up Not A Christian Podcast, you know, six months ago and then like four months ago when it started, this was actually on my short list of, of things, topics that I would never talk about. I'm never going to discuss this because I'm worried about how it's going to be received or how I may be received. But I feel like it's something that needs to be said. It needs to be talked about because it is a growing issue. It is becoming a bigger and bigger deal, especially in Baptist circles. So that's what I've got for you. I hope I did this justice. So if you want to know more, or if I can clarify anything to you, go ahead and reach out to me. If you're a woman who is feeling called to ministry and you need to kind of hash it out with somebody, I can refer you to some, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'd be glad to talk with you about that. Uh, but also I could refer you to other individuals that would, would be much more knowledgeable than I am, both uh, you know biblically and theologically and also through their own experiences of being women in ministry. So that's what I thought. Let me know what you think. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Did your mind change on anything? Are you now considering coming over to the dark side? (laughs) I don't know, but that's what I've got. Let's go ahead and transition to the closing. So I hope you enjoyed that episode of Not a Christian Podcast. Like I said in the intro, it's going to be a little bit of a different episode because it was mostly just one segment outside of that pre-show banter, but I kind of liked it. It was pretty fun. Next week, I haven't quite planned out the segments yet, got some things running through my mind, but next week is going to be the biggest giveaway in Not A Christian Podcast history. Be watching my social media if you're not following me on Instagram, Not Christian Pod, Twitter, at Not Christian Pod, Facebook, Not a Christian Podcast. Go follow us over there because I'm going to tease some details ahead of time. And then on next Friday's show, I am going to tell you the details of the giveaway. Going to be giving away more stickers than I've ever given away before. It's going to be so much fun. I hope you enjoyed it. But for now, that's all I've got for you. That's a wrap and that's a frat snap. Next time, I promise I'll do just a little bit better later. <laughs>